Thank you for listening. This is Getting to Know You, a podcast introducing Jewish Federation of the Desert CEO, Alan Potash, to leaders, influencers, and people of interest in the Coachella Valley. I'm Jeff Hawker, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Alan Potash. Jeff, as always, good to see you. Hope always you had great a, to see you. Hope you had a good week. So who have yes, you brought so far, today so for me to learn from? Uh, David Eugene Perry, and he is an author and a PR consultant. And we are here to talk about his book, but also how you ended up in Palm Springs. <laughs> well, Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Ahoy, everyone. Um, that was, I don't know if I'm an influencer or what was it? An in, you had to be an influencer, a person of interest or, or something. I think you're all of them. There well, you go. We, we look for people of interest. And if you happen to be an influencer at the same time, that's good for you. Yeah. It's also good for us. Um, I am fascinated. I just learned shortly about you as an author. Uh, read a little bit about you. So the first question is, why are you in Palm Springs? Well, and the short answer is, it's just gosh darn beautiful. We love it. My the the little bit longer answer is, my husband and I, Alfredo Casuso, now celebrating twenty five years this year, which in gay years okay, I right. think is that's, like a hundred. That's great. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, we had a very very dear friend who had a place down here, and in two thousand twelve, he died very suddenly of a massive heart attack. And left behind his 94-year-old mother who had late-term Alzheimer's. And we became her guardians. So over a period of five weeks, we were flying back and forth between San Francisco like 10 times to find her nursing and set her up and whatnot. And during that time, we really fell in love with Palm Springs. We met the community. We found out how philanthropic it was. Everyone was so helpful, helping Lillian, God bless her. And we said, we're not getting any younger. We're certainly not going to retire yet. But at some point, we think about moving here. So we rented our home in San Francisco for a couple of years because, as Jeff knows, once you leave San Francisco, <laughs> you never get back in that real estate market. And after two years, we realized, yeah, this is home. So we moved here full time. We still have a lot of clients in San Francisco. We do have a public relations and design firm. I'm actually on the board of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. But we also have a business license here. We're getting more and more clients here, including a number of nonprofits and good causes, because as you well know, the philanthropy of the desert is quite extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's sometimes it's hard to break into. So yeah. what what are you using as your guide to get into the nonprofit world and to encourage people to use your your skills? Well, I always say it's the three P's, patience, perkiness, and per persistence. Um, I always thought it was purse, purse, and purse. Purse, purse, and purse, right. Uh, I have been very fortunate in that I have never had to advertise for a client. Every client has come and found us. We've been working with Hark Data. I'm sure you know them, the health analysis mm -hmm. group. And they do an, uh, an annual survey of Riverside County about mental health, physical health, yeah, yeah. all that. And that data goes to influence policymakers, legislators, businesses, that sort of thing. Work with a nonprofit theater here. I think it's the best theater company in town, but of course I'm the PR guy, so I'd say that. <laughs> which, which theater group? Desart performs. They perform in the Palm Springs uh, Women's Club. Then have done some volunteer work for the Cathedral City Senior Center. Have some for-profit clients, of course. The Purple Room celebrating their 10th year in art. Mm -hmm. uh, modern yeah. classic where Sinatra went and had a drink or four or five. And more and that's more... That's where we recently saw Debbie Boone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah which will... Well, that's an interesting whole story. Uh, yeah, Debbie Boone. Uh, I, I found out that she grew up with the Rat Pack. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of interesting when she was uh, a kid. And, of course, Mr. Jeff Hawker. We are working with him on events like the Palm Springs Food and Wine Festival. We're working, coming up very soon, the Palm Springs Unified School District Foundation is doing their Bollywood 
mm-hmm. fundraiser. And I didn't know about all the work they do, which is really extraordinary. And then yeah, also we had, Ellen we had Ellen. On the- I, yes. I, I was blown away with that interview because I learned a lot about the school district and the foundation and what they really do. And I also learned the challenges that the families and kids have here in this area. Well, you know, you raise 98% are on free or reduced lunch. Well, exactly. And I'm sure you realize this with the Jewish Community Foundation. I think Palm Springs has a reputation as being, quote unquote, rich. And so everyone must be rich. You know, most of the students and families that are supported by the foundation are lower income. Same thing with Eisenhower Health. A lot of people think, oh, it's just a hospital for rich people. No, they have so much work that's done with low-income people. And then the last nonprofit that currently we're working with, and it's one of our pro bonos, is the Palm Springs Public Library Foundation, supporting their work in getting that library. Uh, so we had renovated. Corey Roskin on last week, and he was talking about uh, Pride to the Page. Pride, Pride, Pride on the, the Page, page. Yeah. yeah. So that's where I started learning about the Library Foundation. I, I'm intrigued. You're, you're an author. You're a... A, a, a voiceover person, you bring all these talents to Palm Springs. Are you enjoying yourself? I love Palm Springs. My my grandfather always said the most important thing was to enjoy your work. Mm-hmm. And my mother and my father both work, so I, I grew up seeing people love their work. And I can honestly say I love all our clients. Only twice in a career that's now been 36 years, I'll be 62 in a few weeks, have I fired a client. And it was because I just realized I'm not in, there was nothing wrong with them. They weren't doing anything wrong. I just suddenly realized I'm not enjoying it anymore. You need to find someone else. Well, I think a lot of um, nonprofits today, I shouldn't say not a lot of them, many of them are in crisis mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, going through COVID, many nonprofits had challenges. You know, fortunately, there was the PPP funds available to help them through. But getting through that period of time was difficult. So I don't know how you worked with people to survive during COVID. Well, that's a very interesting question because people asked us during COVID, do you do crisis communications? I said, that's all we're doing <laughs> in 2020. Uh, I actually like crisis communications. I think it has a bad reputation. For me, crisis communications is the most important part of communications. It's when a company really needs someone who can stand in front of the camera or the microphone and try to be free of emotion. Right. And that's especially important for nonprofits because you're doing good work. Sometimes it's hard to separate the emotion of what you do and communicate with the press because although I was a journalist for many years and, and still a writer, there's that old adage, which Jeff knows well, if, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Or as I like to say, if it doesn't light up or blow up, the press won't show up. <laughs> so they're, they're, always, they're always looking for the thing that's the gotcha. Yeah. So being able to stand in front of press and not do a gotcha I, I find an interesting challenge. I think it comes from my meditation practice from years past. I, I agree with you on that. And, and the meditation piece is critical because you need to have a calm face and you need to be careful with the words that you use. And as a writer, you know that very well. But I, I am intrigued by the fact that people are afraid to use somebody who specializes in crisis communication because it says there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Usually there's not something wrong. You're preventing something from getting terrible. Oh, yeah. People always say, well, your job is to get things in the press. I'm like, well, actually, the hardest part is keeping things (laughs) out out of of the press. press. Yeah. Well, and you're working on a project that is a little bit of a crisis kind of situation is the Maryland statue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, I'm happy to talk. Not the Maryland, like Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah, the big statue in front of the museum downtown Palm Springs. Right. Well, and thank you, you know, for leading me into that. I, you know, I, I, as I say, I only work with clients I believe in. And we got called and said, 
we want to put on the ballot to solve this issue once and for all, should the Maryland statue stay where it is now, which means getting the city to close that street and make it into a pedestrian thoroughfare, which... Isn't it, it that what it is now? It, it, it is it, now. Yeah, they have those huge spikes that come up out of the ground. Right. Let's do a little background information on the statue and why there's an issue. So would you mind... Do you want to take that or shall I? Go for it. So there's an artist whose name escapes me at the moment who created this iconic 28-foot-tall statue of Marilyn Monroe based on the very famous scene of her in the seven-year itch. And it's been around the country. And it came to Palm Springs several years ago and was temporarily on the plaza where now the, the Starbucks and Rowan are. And then it left. And then PS Resorts said, wow, this was a huge tourist attraction when it was here. People came and took pictures of it. And they bought it. And they decided to put it on the street right in front of the museum, right inside the new city park, and instantly became an icon. And the city said for, for temporary to see how it goes, if people like it, we're going to close this street. Well, some people don't like the statue. And uh, they said, well, they filed a lawsuit. And so the city could not. So who filed the lawsuit? It, there's, it's a group uh, of private citizens who, it, for whatever reason, said that they reason, don't like yeah, it. Yeah. And so there is a lawsuit pending. And what our group, which is called Protect Our Maryland, protectourmaryland.com, said, you know what? Whether you like the statue, whether you don't like the statue, this is a democracy the last time I checked, at least for the next few minutes, hopefully until November 2024. Um, we're going to put We're a non political organization. We're not, I understand. So we, I'm gonna, now I'm going to need to hire you as a crisis Yeah, manager. yeah. I'm going to get you in trouble. <laughs> Uh, we said, let's put it on the ballot. So what our group is doing is gathering signatures. We have to get 3,000 signatures by October 6th to put it on the ballot for March. 3,000 is all you need? Yeah. You're yeah. probably there already. Well, and one of, the, one of the controversies also is for decades, there was a huge, ugly mall that was along Palm Canyon Drive. They finally tore it down and cut the street through so that you could finally see the museum. And so that was the whole point. It's like, oh, you cut this street through, you can see the museum now, and now you want to close it again. Right. So that's how, part do, how does the museum feel about the sculpture? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, some of the board felt so strongly that when some, certain people opposed the statue being there, they resigned. I would say that the current board is somewhat divided. I don't speak for them, so I don't put words in their mouth. But the real issue from our point of view is the statue is there now. Literally hundreds of thousands of people have come. Just follow the Instagram account. They said it's one of the reasons they go downtown. It's in an iconic spot. Marilyn Monroe is associated with Palm Springs. People love it. So, okay, once and for all, we're going to put it on the ballot and let the voters choose. That's, that's what our campaign is about, putting it on the ballot. So what happens if it's turned down through the voting process? Would it be moved to another location? It's possible because, I mean, it is now owned by PS Resorts. So the issue is there's no other really place to put it. I, and again, I just moved here less than two years ago, and I thought it was a connection to the museum because it's right in front of the museum, the art museum. Well, I, a lot of people love that because, it's again, a, it's uh, a directional. We, we have done a survey the museum attendance has really gone up because people come to see the statue now and then they go in. Well, and there's other public art there too. That car that's right across from right. the museum. They had the babies that were in the pit there. Yeah, that was, so, that was, that would have, 
Those were challenging. Those babies were challenging. Yeah. Are they, are they gone now? I can go back to the museum. They're gone. Well, do you know? Because there's still one left that's on the row. It's on the balcony of the row. Did they buy that? Do you I know? don't know. I know that my husband, Alfredo, and I had dinner there the other night at Clandestino. And we looked up. And at first, I thought it was a very large person. I was like, whoa. Oh, oh, it's one of the babies. So I, I don't want to advertise, you know, the ballot issue, but how close are you to the 3,000 signatures? I think we're pretty close. Yeah, and, and again, what I said the other day, and like I said, I've had people yell at me, which doesn't bother me at all. I said, all right, so if you don't like the statue, then why would you oppose getting it on the ballot and voting against it? Yeah. Or voting. So, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to move on because I see a copy of your book on the table. Yeah, shameless plug. Yeah, shameless, but it's, you know, it's a worthwhile plug. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the book, the history behind it and sure. why you wrote it and what kind of research you had to do to make it happen? Sure. Well, it's, it's called Upon the Rock. At, upon This Rock, which upon is based rock. on the uh, biblical phrase, or I should say the New Testament phrase, not part of the Torah, uh, in which uh, Jesus uh, supposedly said to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church. Because in Greek, the word for rock is Petros. And the town which my book is set in, Orvieto, which is a beautiful hillside town in Umbria, is about halfway between Rome and Florence. And during the Renaissance, when popes were getting killed or murdered or fleeing, there was a lot of that going on in the Renaissance. Orvieto was one of the places they would go to because it's high on a rock. So that's where my title came from. But it's a mystery thriller, and it's inspired by a real event. Sadly, uh, in 2010, it was a young man in Orvieto who wanted very badly to be a priest, was a week away from being ordained when the Vatican sent him a fax denying him the priesthood on the rumor that he was gay. Now, this on is the a, Jewish on a, on a rumor. On a rumor. And now, this is the Jewish Federation, so I don't expect you to be upon Catholic history. I was raised Catholic, came this close to being a monk. And now you're Jewish? I no. should be. Oh. All my friends, all my friends say I'm Jewish. Or should be. Maybe I am. You never know. Um, having the Vatican get into ordaining a priest is like Jimmy Carter programming the tennis courts. You just don't do it. They don't get into that level of detail. And this young man was so distraught, he threw himself in the rock and killed himself. Completely serendipitously, we arrived in Orvieto on November 30th, 2014. It was the four-year anniversary of this young man's suicide, and the town was still talking about it. I became fascinated by that. And then I later found out that in Orvieto was where the Pope was in 1527 when the ambassadors from London came requesting a divorce for King Henry VIII from Catherine of Aragon. Oh, interesting. And I also found out that Orvieto had, during the Renaissance, quite an active Jewish population. Uh, it should be no secret to anyone who studies history that the papacy depended upon a lot of Jewish bankers. So I found, as a student of religion, the confluence of, oh, and there was also that summer, the huge immigrant crisis going on. A lot of people, especially Muslim families, fleeing Africa and Libya, and they were coming to Orvieto. And you would see them on the, the streets. But not, but not in 1500. Not in 1527. No, no, no. Well, except one of the characters in the book is a man who's known to history as Leo Africanus. He was a historian. And when the Jews and the Muslims were expelled from Spain in 1492, he fled by ship. And there was a shipwreck. He ended up on the coast of Italy. And the Pope adopted him and converted him, but he always kept his birth religion. He used to say that, you know what, I am a traveler and a writer. So when I am in Rome, I'm a Catholic. 
And when I'm somewhere else, I'm Jewish. And when I'm in my homeland, I'm a Muslim. He considered himself a citizen of the world. And I read about him in this area of Orvieto, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if all these characters came together in the past? So the book is a mystery set in the present day, but the solution to the mystery is back in 1527 with all these characters. How phenomenal. What kind of research did you have to go through to put this together? A lot. I spent a lot of time in the library in Orvieto. I'm very proud of the research. I always tell people, if you read this book and it says this happened on this date, it did. Um, I love historic fiction, yeah. but it bugs me when I see something like the Medici on TV, which is great, great acting. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not how that happened. Uh, <laughs> it, it really bugs me. I watched last night on TV a wonderful movie, but although very kind of sad in a way, The Butler, about the butler that worked for eight U.S. presidents. Yeah. Uh, African-American man, poor black family, and his story is really incredible. And after the movie, I went and read that, well, that really isn't what happened. So I, I, I feel, again, even as a writer, of, I know, I, I even feel as a writer of fiction, especially historic fiction, I have a responsibility to get the history correct. So I, I respect that greatly because I have had conversations with other authors who write historical fiction. And when I challenge them on the facts, they say, well, it's fiction. I said, but you're portraying it Correct. as historical fiction, so not historical, you know, yeah. historical. And I, I think it's a it's a, a challenge for me as a reader to read historical fiction and not have it be accurate. So I thank you for the research. Well, thank you and the accuracy. Well, and it, it's going really well. I, uh, I would be lying if I didn't say that a probably the most famous openly gay author in the English language at the moment, Armistead Maupin, famous for the Tales of the City series, uh, reviewed it and called it an elegant, twisty thriller. This book will do for Orvieto what Midnight in the Garden of Eat Good and Evil did for Savannah. That's awesome. And Fenton Johnson gave me, the, gave me the quote that I think got me my screenwriter, which is, this is the gay Da Vinci Code, but a lot better. I'm trying to process that, the gay Da Vinci Code. Yeah. But a lot better. But a, but a, I didn't mean to leave that <laughs> part out. I was a huge fan of that movie. It just, I don't know. That was yeah. Tom Hanks? Yeah. 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 Well, we don't need to get are, it. So, do you are you fluent in Italian? No, no. My husband is fluent in four languages, which makes traveling with him really easy. I know just enough Italian to order. But coffee. it's mostly Latin. It's a, the, the Latin is the only language that I'm better at than Alfredo, because like I said I spent 12 years in parochial school and was going to be a priest, a monk. So I do study Latin. De gustibus non So when you were doing the uh, research in Italy. You were reading it in English? So a lot of it was in English, but then you would go to the library, and then I would have Alfredo read it. And then I did okay. do some Translated research online, uh, but it was both. It was both. But you're citing your sources in the original text. Correct. Yeah, that's great. Correct. So, yeah, it's doing well. It's going into its second printing, and uh, now that the now that the screenwriter's strike is over, hopefully my wonderful screenwriter, Rodney Vance, thank you very much, with... Uh, <laughs> Great movie credits. We'll finish it, and Netflix will buy it. Please, please. So let's talk about the screenwriting. So how did you find uh, an author to work on, a screenwriter to work on it? And then what kind of relationship did you have to establish to trust somebody to take your work and to yeah. change it? Well, again, serendipity. I We were actually in Orvieto. We go back now pretty much every year because we fell in love with the town. And I got an email out of the blue saying, hi, my name is Rodney Vance, I read your book, and I think it would make an incredible movie or Netflix series. And normally you get a screenwriter, you have a relationship to your mm -hmm. point, you develop a level of trust, and you pay them mm -hmm. to do a treatment. He right. said, I believe in this project so much, I'm going to do it on spec. 
meaning that once it's done, then if we sell it, he'll get a percentage. And I already had the screen rights from my publisher, Quill Driver Press in Fresno, California. So I own the rights to any sort of treatment. So Rodney's working on it. And right before the writer's strike, oh, and then to your point about the trust, we talked back and forth. He read it. He himself is quite a student of religion. I think this impacted him greatly. And he found the connection and the way that my characters talk about religion and about diversity and about the golden thread that I was always taught when I did meditation. The thing in all religions that's the same, mm-hmm. you know, whatever one calls the divine. or The golden bow, yeah. Yeah, golden bow. Um, he said, I really think that's the core of this book. So right before the writer's strike started, he sent me the first pilot. Oh, really? And it was so emotional. And it had, it does not start like the book starts. And I read it and I, I actually cried. And I called him. I said, this is beautiful. He said, well, it doesn't start like your book does. I said, no, but. But you have to trust people You have to sometimes. trust. That's it. Yeah. I said, I'm not a screenwriter. And he, he I, as soon as I was reading it, I said, oh, that's what it's going to look like on the screen. Yeah. Well, it's also to take a, I'm guessing it's a 325 page book. Yeah. Close. But the but the point is, is that when you're taking a novel or book and you're making it into a screenplay, it's gonna go from those four hundred pages down to hundred and twenty five pages. That's exactly right. And I knew none of that before. Yeah. I didn't know what a showrunner was. He said we we need to get you a showrunner. Like, I always that? thought that was the person who got the coffee, but it's I not. Know, it's not. It's not. You're exactly right. It's like, know. oh, you're the best guy or the grip. It's like, I don't know what those things no, are. I, the, I, no, the showrunner is the person that's actually in. The, doing the show. In charge. Yeah. yeah. I, I met a couple of showrunners and I embarrassed myself, but that's okay. Yeah. So that's what I'm looking for. So if there's any out there hearing this podcast, call me maybe. Yeah. I need to sell it now. So yes, the hard part now is oh. actually I have to sell it and I'm. Hopeful people have it. I, several people I've spoken to a couple of directors who have read the book, and they said when the screenplay is done, let us know. And there's call for a lot of content. Yeah, there's right a great deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, David, I know you're in a rush, and I thank you very much for coming here today. Um, Jeff, anything you want to add? No, fantastic interview. Thank you so much for being here. You, you're very welcome. But also, I just want to say that it's really a great honor to to be here with the Jewish Community Foundation up in San Francisco. Uh, the Jewish Community Center is just an incredible resource. And here now, just seeing here, I can see the same. So, Well, the funny part is that uh, I lived in Foster City and our family was part of the JCC there and for years. And it was just an amazing complex that we just loved to be a part of. And there was a library there and I would go in and I would read, you know, some, some yeah. books and stuff. Um, and then... Alan and I ended up meeting, and it just kind of fostered a relationship. Well, so. I'll, I'll end this with a joke because you'll you'll appreciate this. Um, you know, having been in PR for many years, one of our clients was uh, George Lucas, the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I was his spokesman for six years on the museum project. And one day there was a big event at Lucasfilm, and all the the franchisees who had made things in Star Wars, you know, there's a Darth Vader yeah. cookie jar and a Yoda watch and all this. And we're <laughs> Have there. Have you been lo- to it? It's in Fort Mason. It's oh, amazing. amazing. And we're overlooking all this. And, uh, and I said, oh, my God, look at all the tchotchkes. And the woman behind me said, what temple do you go to? And I said, oh, I said, no, I, I'm not Jewish. I'm, I'm gay. She said, gay, Jewish, same thing. <laughs> so I should have been. It's very good. Jeff, you want to take us out? Thank you, for David, for being here. This has been Getting to Know You. Thank you for listening to all of our dedicated listeners. 
This podcast can be found on Apple Podcast and other podcast forums. Thank you, Jeff.